I'm Julie Rose, and this is Top of Mind. I have been a radio journalist for two decades, but a few years ago, I found myself avoiding the news for long stretches because of how depressing and divisive it all seems. I still wanted to be informed and engaged on important issues, though, and I figured I couldn't be alone in that. So we created this podcast. Each week, we tackle one tough topic in a way that will challenge you, help you feel more empathy, and empower you to become a better citizen, a kinder neighbor, and a more effective advocate. Today, what's our responsibility when we know that someone is in danger? I started dancing probably when I was four or five. Uh, My mom took me to go see the Nutcracker, and I memorized, like, the whole thing. And I went home, and I, like, tried to do it in our living room. When I took ballet classes, absolutely loved it. And then I got sucked into the hole of then going to more and more classes and then putting on point shoes. I traveled all over the world, all over the U.S. My end career goal was to be a professional ballet dancer. I was assaulted by a fellow dancer at the school that I was training at, and it happened um, multiple times. There were adults involved who knew and had knowledge of what had happened and knowledge of not only what was happening to me, but what had happened to other girls, and they chose to do nothing. They chose to stay silent. When somebody is in danger, we like to think that we'll help, and many people do. But there are countless stories of people who don't, for a lot of reasons. They don't feel safe, or they don't know how to help, or maybe they assume someone else will. What if you're not actually witnessing the harm, but you suspect it's being done, and you're in a position to intervene, but don't? Season three of Top of Mind is focused on finding fairness. So today, none of us want to do harm, but when harm is being done by another, what is our responsibility? Is not stepping in ever acceptable? What happens when those who could help choose not to? And what motivates those who do step in or speak out? Just a quick note here, the first half of this episode touches on the all-too-common tragedy of child abuse and sexual assault. We're not going to get graphic, and the focus is on how abuse can be prevented. But if you need to hold off listening until you're in a different space, please take care. I was pretty young, I was still a teenager, uh, didn't have really much knowledge that something like that could happen, and so I didn't really know what to do. Aya Hibben was studying ballet at a prestigious boarding school when she was raped by another teenage dancer. And I only really realized what had had happened to me a couple months later when a few girls at the ballet came up to me and they were sharing their stories about things that they had experienced, whether it was abuse by other dancers or strange comments that were made by other dancers to them, male dancers. And I did a very unusual thing for me at the time. I kind of rounded us all up and we went into the office of our like administrator and we told her, you know, all these things that had happened to us. We had like pictures that were being sent in group chats, like harassing girls, things like that. We had like a lot of stuff and there were about 20 of us and we were all like shoved into this little tiny office telling her all these things that had happened. And eventually she said, okay, I'll, I'll make sure everything's handled and we get all this sorted out and we'll work on um, like interviewing all the boys. And then a couple days later, um, there was a private meeting with all the boys, but we didn't know what exactly was said. Um, And that was the end of it. Um, There was no police involvement. Um, I reported it to the um, therapist that the school had, who was a mandatory reporter, um, and nothing was ever done about that. And after that, I pretty much just thought, well, if um, there's no investigation sort of from a ballet academy, there's nothing that can be done from their perspective. Um, that means I probably can't say anything. Like, I could never go to the police by myself, or I could never, like, do any of these other things by myself. Because I was like, well, if the adults handled it, and they handled it as much as they could, and I had complete faith that they did, then I was just like, okay, well, can't do anything about it now, and sort of try to continue with my life. Did your parents know? Um, I didn't tell my parents. I told my mom um, a few years later what had sort of happened, um, but my parents put an incredible amount of trust 
into the academy to look after me. And they had been told by the academy that they would, you know, keep all the girls safe, that we would be looked after and that there was resources and things like that. And I knew how hard it was, especially for my mom, to let me go away from home that early. Um, and I really didn't want her to ever blame herself because um, I don't find her responsible in any way for, you know, what happened or anything. And it was an incredible opportunity for me to train. And um, did you feel safe? No, not at all. It was it was a very, a very hard time. And then it was the end of the school year. And so we had like a summer away and I took so much time off of ballet and I did it on purpose, sort of knowing that I would be so out of shape that I would not want to sort of like go back. And you were sabotaging yes. your career at that point. Yes. That fall, she enrolled at the University of Utah and got surgery for a hip injury that had been plaguing her. And I started the physical therapy process after I got surgery and I tried to take ballet classes again. And it was probably, I took maybe two or three ballet classes and I just did not feel like I could ever enter that space again. Um, it just didn't feel like a um, a safe environment anymore. I mean, I, I don't really even go see ballet anymore. I don't really engage with, um, it was completely just, I had to cut it off completely. She's now majoring in political science with plans to go to law school. And she spent a year writing opinion pieces for the student newspaper. I wrote a lot about sexual violence, and for some reason, it was very important to me. And I couldn't really, I had so far removed myself from what had happened that I really didn't ever think about my own personal involvement with it. Um, I, I really just did not speak about it at all. Um, but I was a victim's advocate, for sure. And then um, through the Honors College, there's a class called The Bystander, and it was taught by Professor Amos Giora. And it was a very small eight-person seminar where we, on the first day, we talked about sexual violence. For one of his books, he wrote it specifically um, talking to the girls who um, were involved with the USA Gymnastics team, um, hundreds of who were abused by Larry Nassar, and he spoke to them and sort of talked about the environment that they were in and all these other people that had sort of allowed Nassar to continue abusing girls and had like full knowledge of what was happening to the girls and didn't do anything. And I, for some reason, could not handle it. And there were a few times when I would like raise my hand and then put it back down in class and I couldn't really grasp it. And then at the end, right before we went on a break, I just blurted out what had happened to me. And I was like, so my story is almost exactly like what happened. And then over the next couple of classes, um, Amos asked me to stand up and draw on a diagram what the chain of reporting was and who should have been telling who and who I told and who they should have told and where were the, you know, like wh which were the adults. And I started realizing, um, oh my gosh, there were adults involved in this who knew and had, had knowledge of what had happened and knowledge of not only what was happening to me, but what had happened to other girls. And they chose to do nothing. Um, and they chose to stay silent. And whether they reported that up and those people then chose to stay silent, I don't know. Um, but they were all sort of involved in this. And there was no sort of um, knowledge from my point of view, that there could be anybody else involved in the situation except for me and the perpetrator. A big thing for victims, I think, that, you know, maybe someone who's listening might relate to is, is victims always feel some sort of guilt and blame on themselves. And I, logically, we know that that isn't really our fault, but there's always some part of us that will blame ourselves, you know. Why did you let that happen to you? Why didn't you go to the, right to the police? Why didn't you, you know, tell your mom anything? Like, all these things that I had blame against myself. Um, but I was the only child at the time. And when I learned of, like, the bystander and enabler theory, I was able to sort of put the blame on more than just me and the perpetrator. And so that was extremely validating for me to hear that there was some other blame that I could put elsewhere on mm -hmm. someone else. Do you blame the adults who did nothing more than you blame 
the boy who raped you? Um, I wouldn't say I blame them exactly for what happened to me, but I feel the emotional weight and um, the suffering that I had for so many years um, was more caused by them than by my rapist. I don't feel like the emotional damage of being raped was as much as the emotional damage of, of being ignored as a child and, and having someone just pretty much ignore me and, and say, your story's not important. We're not going to go forward with this. Um, we're not going to do anything. There's no case here. There's nothing to do. You're not listened to. You're not important. This person is more important than you. Um, this institution is more important than you. Um, that is the reason why I, I can definitely say the reason why I was silent for so many years, the reason why I couldn't talk about it myself or with anyone that I loved. Um, even now, I'm still more angry about what they did than like what my rapist did. I don't really have any sort of lingering thoughts about the reasons why he did what he did. I more have a lot more questions and thoughts about um, the enablers in, in my situation. So um, are, are you planning to pursue any action? Um, no. I think, I think at this point, I think I emotionally need to be removed from that sort of world. I think my, my mom tried to several times, you know, encourage me to, to say something, to speak up, to report something. Um, I'm just not sure if I could survive that again. Aya Hibben is currently focused on her work as a writer and researcher for the Bystander Initiative at the University of Utah Law School. It was created in 2022 by Amos Giora, the professor who teaches the Bystander class that was so eye-opening for Hibben. After the class finished, um, Amos introduced me to this project he was working on about a murder of a 12-year-old boy named Jeremy Bell um, back in 1997 in West Virginia. He was murdered by a pedophile who abused um, who knows how many other boys at other schools. And he was basically passed around from school to school. Every school knew about what was going on. And then after um, the boy was murdered, uh, there was a police cover-up also. And his story was, you know, eerily similar to sort of all the other stories that we've talked about, sort of people inside an institution not doing anything, not reporting, not making a record of it, uh, whether it's the Catholic Church or whether it's in ballet or whether gymnastics in universities. It's a sort of rush to protect the institution to say, the institution is good. And it's just this one bad apple. It's just this one thing that happened. And what happens when people ignore what's going on is that the institution then becomes complicit in what's going on and com becomes complicit in abuse. And so our work was basically writing a law review article about that, tracking every single document that proved that someone had knowledge and did nothing and didn't pass it on, and um, working towards pushing for um, creating more legislation about criminalizing the enabler and the bystander. If we can track you not doing anything and you purposefully ignoring a victim, yeah, you deserve some sort of consequence for that. Um, I would want that for the enablers and bystanders involved in my story. And I know other victims would want that in their stories as well. Yeah. Thank you, Aya, yeah. for sharing your yeah. story today. Of course. Thank you so much. Aya Hibben is an undergraduate studying political science on the pre-law track at the University of Utah. She currently works as a research assistant with the Bystander Initiative at the S.J. Quinney School of Law under the supervision of Professor Amos Giora. So what would holding bystanders and enablers criminally accountable look like? Would there be jail time involved? Fines? Who exactly would qualify? Those who knew positions of authority and failed to protect the vulnerable, that needs to be a crime. I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. My name is Amos Giora. I'm a professor of law at the S.J. Quinney College of Law at the University of Utah. In recent years, Giora has become the leading advocate for holding people criminally responsible for standing by while harm is happening. 
His interest stems from his family story. Both his parents survived the Holocaust, though he knew little of their experience until just about a decade ago. I grew up not knowing anything, zero, about my parents. They made a deal with each other that they would never share their Holocaust stories with their children. Ten years ago, while training for the Salt Lake Marathon, my running partner, who's not Jewish, said to me, just trying to kill time, right? She said, how did this, this being the Holocaust, she said, how did this happen? And I said, I have no idea whatsoever. And um, I went back to my apartment. I said, enough is enough. So <laughs> I read as much as you can read. And then it became clear to me that the question of the bystander had never really been addressed. And that led to the first book about the, the crime of complicity, the bystander in the Holocaust. My father was 19. My father was in a camp in Yugoslavia, in a work camp. He survived two death marches. I have met with the historian who wrote the history of this camp, and it's through him that I learned my father's story. The bystanders are the villagers who saw my father and others going from village to village, looking for hiding, trying to get ultimately to Bulgaria. My mother's in the attic, uh, just like Anne Frank was in the attic in Amsterdam. My mother is in the attic in Budapest with her mother, fed every day by, a, by an elderly Catholic woman. Um, my mother is twice taken to be shot. The bystanders are the Hungarian Gentiles who saw my mother and my grandmother in a panicked run through the streets of Budapest. Obviously Jewish with the yellow star. My grandparents were deported on May 26, 1944, and they were killed in Auschwitz the same day. For me, the bystanders are those in this town in eastern Hungary who stood on the train platform as my grandparents were being shoved onto the train and didn't do anything, those are bystanders. And the Holocaust doesn't happen without them. You know, when Eichmann comes to Budapest on March 19th, 1944, he comes maybe with 100 German officers. That's it. Because they knew they could count on the Hungarians. Those are all bystanders. After the release of his book, The Crime of Complicity, The Bystander in the Holocaust, Amos Giora connected with Brian King, a Democrat in the Utah House of Representatives, and they began drafting a law to hold bystanders accountable. The first iteration of the bystander legislation that, that King introduced is called the 911 bill. I'm there. I have a phone. All I have to do is dial 911. No expectation that you get involved. And if I don't dial 911, I've committed a crime. The class B misdemeanor. And you're not asking me to jump onto the train no, tracks. No, don't watch it. No, 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 not at or all. Or intervene if someone's being mugged. I just have to call. That's right. And the the bill passed through the Judiciary Committee. I testified there, and we lost on the House floor, lost the following year and the following year, and then finally we did uh, win. And it was, for me, an extraordinary moment because it gave affirmation for my parents' Holocaust story. That is what drives this awful bus. Now, they didn't ultimately get the 911 bill passed, but they did get similar wording inserted into Utah's existing law that requires people in certain positions, like teachers or doctors, to report possible abuse. So it imposes, imposes on the bystander if you're there, and you see a vulnerable adult and or vulnerable child, the obligation to contact the authorities. And how is that different from a mandatory reporting it, law that it many expands states it have? You don't, exactly. It expands it. Okay, so you expand it to make anybody who's aware that a vulnerable person is in vulnerable danger. Vulnerable child or adult. Child or adult That's is in right. danger. You are obligated to call authorities. Exactly right. We so expand, you expand it. You make everyone a mandatory reporter. Because I know the consequences of not. There are 12 other states that have this. There are 30 different countries that have this. We're pretty expansive here, but they, they have bystander bills. And I've met with legislators here, there, and everywhere. Meanwhile, Giora was beginning to realize his focus on holding bystanders accountable was too narrow. His publisher had encouraged him to write a book about people who'd been complicit in sexual abuse scandals within USA Gymnastics and the Catholic Church. So Giora got in touch with several victims, including some gymnasts who had been abused by physician Larry Nassar. And during a conversation with one of those women... I keep talking about the bystander, the bystander, the bystander. And she, at, at some point, had enough of me. She screamed at me. Um, how adjective stupid are you? There were no bystanders with Nasser. They're all enablers. Nobody was in the room. No. So a bystander is someone who saw it in action. An enabler is not present. I mean, and, and some of them, Maddie Larson, who I spent significant time with, 
who was assaulted by Nasser 750 times. She even told me when she, that in her victim impact statement, if you haven't watched it, it's incredibly powerful. Because she looks at Nasser, she's like, you know how much I hate you. And from that moment on, Larry Nasser is no longer relevant to her. She, the enablers, ensuring that Nasser continues to have unfettered access to a zillion women, she could strangle them. That's the point. In all of his work advocating to criminalize bystanders, it had never occurred to Gior that another group of people was also guilty of failing to act. The interviews he conducted with athletes who were abused by USA Gymnastics Dr. Larry Nassar were the spark for Gior's next book called Armies of Enablers, Survivor Stories of Complicity and Betrayal in Sexual Assaults. He was shocked at the response. Because it turns out I'm literally the only law professor who writes about enablers from a legal perspective in the context of sexual assaults. And all of a sudden I'm flooded with speaking requests, webinar requests, people reaching out to me from around the world. I think I've spoken to people from, by now, from over 30 countries. One of those emails introduced Amos Giora to the tragedy of Jeremy Bell, the 12-year-old boy we heard about earlier who was sexually abused and murdered by a teacher named Edgar Friedrichs in 1997. When police failed to charge Friedrichs, Jeremy Bell's family hired a private investigator named Dan Barber. And Barber ultimately collected enough evidence to see that teacher convicted of Bell's murder. And then he passed the torch to Amos Giora. A year ago or so, Mr. Barber made an extraordinary decision to contractually bequeath to me every piece of paper you see in my office. If you go to Dan Barber's house today in his study, which used to be filled with Jeremy Bell, Jeremy Bell, Jeremy Bell, everything is here in my office. Um, And when Mr. Barber um, packed it all up and we signed the document and he gave me the picture of the boy, what he said to me in giving it to me that the reason he's giving it to me is to make sure that what happened to that little boy doesn't happen again. So Giora founded the Bystander Initiative to advocate for laws that would make it a Class B misdemeanor to enable sexual assault or abuse, which could mean a fine and even jail time. Six months and or $1,500. This would be a federal crime? No, state. Okay. What? Why do we even need to do that, though? I mean, why is it not enough to educate people and set the expectation that they act. It's a two-part effort. The legislation plus education. Because you're right, legislation in and of itself, that's fine, it's important, it's critical. It's not enough. And there's clearly a need to educate the public as to the the question of the enabler. It's, it's, and and I, I see the resistance, I see that there's pushback on it, which is fine, but there's absolutely a, a need to at least have the discussion about the role of the enabler in protecting the perpetrator. Is, is, is not acting a crime, Yeah, though. sure. This is, I mean, this is the question. The crime of omission, crime of commission, that's the right question. Um, I don't believe that it's an omission. I believe it's a commission because I believe the decision not to act is an act. You're choosing not to act, exactly. therefore you are taking it. 100% action. correct. So you're not saying that somebody who knew about the abuse and failed to report it or do what they could to stop it is guilty of the abuse. Not at all. But it's a, you're asking a, you're asking the hard question. Are they the perpetrator? No. Are they aiders and abettors? No. Which we do have laws we about. We do, absolutely. But they're not quite there. This is the question. Are they aiders and abettors? They're not quite there. Why not? Because aider they, and abettor is a, is, you, is a much more active steps you have to take to be the step of the To aider. be facilitating That's the crime right. itself. Right. And this is an inaction. Not, not quite, exactly. That's right. <laughs> so you can't aid and abet if you're not acting. And barbers asked me, are they co-conspirators? And they're not co-conspirators because they weren't conspiring with Friedrichs. Okay. So they're a separate category of making possible the crime? Yes. They protect the perpetrator. How would you decide how far the enabling umbrella goes? So that's that's a matter for prosecutorial discretion. Um, you would have, obviously have to show knowledge, which in all of these cases, I mean, if you look at those... So there needs to be knowledge. Yes. Knowledge and a, and a decision not to act. That's right. Because I was wondering then, too, you know, I mean, if I am the supporter of an institution, if I'm employed by an institution and there is abuse or harassment taking place within my institution and I'm not aware of it, but I'm profiting from the institution, I'm not an enabler. You are not. Okay. Knowledge is critical. 
Why does somebody choose not to act? Protect the institution, protect themselves. Why you protect the institution? That's going to depend on the institution. So, for instance, in the Bell case, the school administrators, having met with school administrators in different places, first of all, teachers are leaving. And, and school administrators are judged. They themselves are judged by test scores of students. If you have a really good teacher who also happens to be a perp, you kind of overlook it because you need the teacher. What? Absolutely. But isn't there also the risk of, and this would also seem to be something that could be of concern with this idea false of criminalizing ac- enablers, is false accusations. 100%. What do you do? How do you walk that line? If you don't want to be enabler, but you also don't want you to ruin someone's life falsely. You investigate. Okay. You investigate. And, the, and, and enablers are, are not investigating? It's remarkable. I get due process. You know, I teach at a law school. I understand due process. I understand the consequences of false accusations. I get all that all up. On the other hand, your primary duty is to the 12-year-old child. I remind you that a 12-year-old child is at school because the state mandated him to, him or her to be at the school. And the, the only duty, this is my way of thinking, and I get the pushback on it, because the state mandated Jimmy or Johnny or Janie to be at school, I, the principal, the administrator, owe them the duty. We'll stop. Amos Giora is a professor in the S.J. Quinney College of Law at the University of Utah and founder of the Bystander Initiative. His books include The Crime of Complicity and Armies of Enablers. It can be easy to have a pretty hopeless view of human nature, thinking about all the ways bystanders and enablers fail to protect those in need. So how can we cultivate the desire to help? in ourselves and in others. Journalist Elizabeth Svoboda wrote a whole book about it. Heroes mostly are ordinary people who do extraordinary things in the moment because they find the strength within themselves to do so. Maybe we can do more than we realize. I'm Julie Rose. This is Chop of Mind. In August 2022, Bryce Demopoulos went viral. So I was taking the subway, and it was really early, um, probably like 5, 6. Demopoulos is a pre-med student at Cornell University. But over the summer, he had a job in New York City. A video of what happened that morning has been watched more than 32 million times. I was standing there waiting, like, towards the edge of the platform, and... Uh, there was uh, a couple people, not many. Um, one man who was like, I assumed in the end that he was drunk um, or some way intoxicated, but he was standing probably like, like 20, 30 feet to the side of me when he just like, he like leaned over the rails and then like half fell, half stumbled in. And I mean, I saw it happen immediately. He looked like a, like a young, healthy guy, so... My first reaction was to like kind of walk towards him, not like running to help because I didn't think he was in like serious trouble because he seemed like he would be okay. But like within one or two seconds of falling, he didn't get up um, like as immediately as I would have expected. So, I mean, that kind of signaled to me. I was like, oh, like maybe maybe he needs some help just like hopping up out of the tracks. I mean, it's not a huge jump, but it's it's far enough that you could definitely get hurt if you're falling like onto metal tracks um, if you're not like careful about it. It's probably between three and four feet. I've like quickly walked like maybe a half jog like along the platform to where he'd actually fallen in. And I just, I mean, I hopped in and then the first thing I said to him was, hey man, uh, do you need like help getting up? I kind of thought he'd get up, get up on his own and kind of brush me off. Um, but no, he was actually like, yeah man, like thank you. Um, can you help me up out of here? And immediately, like, I grabbed his arm, and then I kind of, like, hoisted him up a little bit to help him back up onto the platform. I, I didn't think that there was a train coming. It was a, it was a blind turn, and I didn't actually hear, like, any rumblings or anything. But as we climbed out, and right after I hopped up, there actually were headlights that, like, turned the blind corner. So that's kind of what made the incident into something that caught a lot of people's attention. I mean, I hope I would have reacted exactly the same had I known a train was coming um, and gotten us both out of harm's way. But I hopped in the tracks just to help him out. 
and I mean, I'm I'm glad I reacted the way that I did because I mean, you never know exactly how you're going to react in that situation. Like I knew this wasn't like a normal thing to do, but I I didn't really expect um, anybody to really take notice outside of anyone who had been on the subway track or after the subway stopped. But when people were like walking up to me on campus those first few weeks that I didn't know and like congratulating me, I was like, oh wow, this is probably like, bigger than it like even should be because I mean like like yes I did help the guy but um I think there are a lot of like as impressive and like more heroic things that happen all the time that go much less recognized and in the long term I mean I think it affected me pretty profoundly in that it kind of cemented my commitment to medicine where I really want to like keep like helping people and and giving back Um, to other people. Thanks to Bryce Demopoulos for telling us that story. Run of the mill as he makes it all sound. Would you have jumped in to help? I want to think I would, but it's just as easy to imagine myself looking around to see if someone else is going to do it instead of me or frankly being so absorbed in scrolling on my phone that I don't even notice someone needs help. Every heroic act starts with paying attention to what other people need. This is Elizabeth Svoboda. I am the author of What Makes a Hero, The Surprising Science of Selflessness, and also a book for kids called The Life Heroic. As you began to do your research for the books, did you discover whether or not humans as a species are are naturally predisposed to help or not help one way or the other? Yes, we're definitely predisposed to help in some ways. Um, We've seen some studies where as early as toddler age, um, the experimenter will have a stack of books that gets tipped over and that toddler will just um, go to pick up the book for the experimenter and try to help that person out. So it does seem that part of it is biological and it makes sense because if you consider that early in the development of human culture, that the best way to, to survive in many ways was to be part of a cooperative group in which members helped one another. That kind of improved everybody's odds of survival. And so we do have that instinct to help to make other people's lives better. But I want to emphasize that in the moment, that instinct is not always going to carry us through. The element of personal choice becomes really important, especially in those high-stress moments where you're not sure, hey, I saw something that was immoral. I know there's something corrupt going on here. Should I report or should I not? And that's where we really have to steel ourselves and turn that impulse we have to help into concrete action. There's a retired Stanford professor named Philip Zimbardo who figures prominently into this research and in your book. So tell us a bit about him. How did he come to be an expert on this idea? For most of his career, Philip Zimbardo really studied what I would boil down to as the genesis of human evil. He's probably the most famous for doing something called the Stanford Prison Experiment, where He recruited a number of college students around the Stanford campus, assigned half of them to be, quote unquote, prisoners in a simulation of prison that he was doing in the college basement, and the other half of them to be guards. And basically, he just told the guards, okay, you have to keep the prisoners in line and prisoners, you obey. What ended up happening was that within the first few days of the experiment, the guards who had been tested beforehand and been shown to be totally psychologically normal by most measures started acting so sadistically toward the prisoners in the experiment that Dr. Zimbardo had to end the experiment early. And so Dr. Zimbardo spent really the next decades trying to figure out what prompted that kind of behavior, basically what made us into our worst selves and what were the influences that encouraged that. But he reached a certain point where he decided, I'm sick of looking at the dark side of humanity. And he decided to do sort of a complete 180 and look at how do we foster our best side. A lot of what he and his new program, uh, the Heroic Imagination Project, 
have been focusing on is trying to create educational programs that help people to recognize the psychological weak spots that cause them either to behave badly or to step back and not intervene when something bad is going on. And so his idea is that if we can help people recognize those weak spots in themselves when they're in a situation where they have to sort of step back and say, okay, there might be peer pressure or some other type of situational pressure that would cause me to go against my values in the face of that, what do I want to do? So you're referring to the power of the situation, which was something that Philip Zimbardo really zeroed in on in his research. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you expand on that? Share share an example of of some research that he did that helped helped to really clarify for him and for us the influence of a situation on our decision in that moment whether to do something helpful or not. There was one experiment where they put a person in a room and all of a sudden uh, smoke would start coming under the door. And it was real obvious there were billows of smoke coming up. And when a person was sitting in the room by themselves, they would just get up and walk out of the room, right? But what the experimenters also found was that when a person was in a group of people, they saw the smoke coming into the room and none of the other people around them got up or made a move to do anything, that person would just stay seated, even though it was obvious that this was smoke, this could be dangerous. So I I always thought that that was such a good illustration of just how profoundly the power of the group can affect our own thinking, sometimes without us even realizing that that's happening. What else um, has the research suggested in addition to being in a large group where nobody's doing anything, what else tends to sort of keep us from acting or stepping in? Well, I I think a lot of it is fear. Oftentimes what happens in those moments is the personal considerations that seem so close and so relevant, like if I speak up, am I going to be ostracized by the rest of my colleagues? Am I going to be blocked from that promotion that I'm up for this year? Those considerations sometimes come so much to the forefront that they crowd out our values about who are the people that we want to protect in society. And so I think we we can make these decisions in the moment out of fear that maybe 10 years later or 20 years later, we're going to look back and say, that was a huge mistake. I can't believe in retrospect that I did that. What can really help in those moments when we know morally we need to step up, we need to say something, we need to do something, just to really step back and take those few minutes to think about what are my highest values and what do I really believe about my responsibility to the people who may be being hurt here? In the research We've learned that when people believe in their ability to make an impact in that way, that encourages them to take these decisive moral actions to speak up even when nobody else is is doing so. So just as an overall rule, the more prepared you feel and the more capable you feel, the more likely you're going to be to intervene. And so people who have the right training, let's say there's a life or death situation. Um, One thing we saw was at the Boston Marathon, after there was that bombing event, the first people to rush forward and to help were often surgeons, EMTs, other people with medical expertise. They had the skills that were needed in that situation, and they came forward and they helped. So having that type of training is really important, but it, it doesn't always have to be super specialized training. Let's say you're thinking about speaking up to your boss about some kind of corruption that's going on at work and you don't know how to start the conversation. Um, You can do a role play with, with somebody who's close to you or you can even journal that, imagine it as a dialogue. What are you gonna say? What is the other person likely to say back? And so I, I think there are ways to create that training and that preparation 
so that in the moment when you need to capitalize on that, you'll you'll be able to do it. It'll just be less resistance in that moment. I was amused by one technique that Philip Zimbardo used with his Stanford students, um, which was to practice being a little deviant. <laughs> describe <laughs> what describe what that was about, uh, what that looked like, and why it might be helpful. Oh yes, I I love this one. I think that he called it "be a deviant for a day," and basically he would tell his psychology students to do something that would make them stand out in public in an unmistakable way. So, for example, maybe you wear a giant diaper, pretend to be a six-foot-tall baby, or you wear a giant mustache, or you wear a giant inner tube around your waist to every single class. It, it almost doesn't matter what you choose. The, the important thing, I think, was... He wanted them to get comfortable with being uncomfortable in public, with going against the norm. That comfort with being uncomfortable, I think, is what underlies so many decisions to behave heroically. Almost by definition, not a lot of people behave heroically because it's hard, because it goes against the grain. So anything you can do in that moment to sort of try on the uncomfortable feeling and and get used to the uncomfortable feeling may be really important preparation for you down the line. I'm speaking with Elizabeth Svoboda, who is author of What Makes a Hero, The Surprising Science of Selflessness, and also The Life Heroic, How to Unleash Your Most Amazing Self. That, that second one is written for kids. We need to talk for a minute about the time you spent with the real-life superhero group. Oh, I had such a blast. The group of real-life heroes that I embedded it with was in New York City, and basically the real-life superheroes are a group of people who each create a superhero identity for themselves, and they then go out and live that identity. So th there was one woman that I met and talked to who was like a Catwoman type of hero, but she was engaged in animal rights causes, and so that was how she lived out her mission uh, in the real world. They, they do it in a fun way. They do it while wearing these costumes. And just on the surface, maybe some people would say, oh, this, this is a little bit silly. Why do they have to wear costumes in order to do this? Why can't they just go out and help people, help animals without putting this extra layer on top of it? But I think what it came down to for me, the, the bottom line was this made it really fun for them to help people. And there's also something really important in, I think, forming these friendships with with other people who have a helper identity, who are doing these kind of things. It comes back to how susceptible we are to peer pressure. It really is true that the type of people we surround ourselves with, we're probably going to behave like them. So if you surround yourself with real-life superheroes, the odds are pretty good that you're going to become either a real-life superhero or somebody who behaves like a real-life superhero, whether or not you're wearing a costume. Talk to me a little bit about what you what you think the keys are to cultivating this helper identity in young people, you know, as parents and as teachers. That's a great question. I, I think one of the most important roles is to guide kids to getting involved in a cause or an issue that really matters to them. There was a teen that I interviewed who there was this app that was becoming popular at her school at a certain time called After School. And people at her school were using this app to sort of anonymously bully other students at the school. And everybody or a lot of kids at the school would see that on their devices and start to get certain ideas about people. And it was just so incredibly destructive. And this girl whose, whose name was Juliana, she actually started a petition to have Apple remove this app entirely from the app store because she just said, this is causing so much harm. This is sowing so much chaos. You really need to, to get rid of this. And um, what ended up happening was Apple took after school 
off the app store. And then when apps like that did start to come back, they had a lot more anti-bullying protections built in. So I thought it was a really great example of how just a, a student who really saw something that was wrong, something that was creating so much chaos and and pain, she she was able to intervene in a way that that helped it in a very real way. Was there anything else you were able to identify about her character or her upbringing or her experience that led her to be able to act where other people might not? She was extremely good at expressing herself um, in, in writing. I read the petition that she put out there and she, she was just really good at articulating what she felt needed to happen and why. And so I think that it probably came down partially to competence. She knew she had this skill, she had this gift to express herself clearly and in a way that moved people. And so she put those skills to use in a way that made the change that she wanted to see. Have you had any experiences um, since writing these books or during the writing of these books where you had the opportunity to to leap into action as a bystander or to be the recipient of, of someone coming to your aid? Yes. I mean, not in a death-defying sense, but there was actually a couple years ago a case at my old school district where a woman came forward and said, um, I, I was abused by my high school teacher. And th- this teacher was actually a teacher that was an important mentor of mine, somebody who I always looked up to. And part of what came out from this brave woman's story was how many other people knew what was going on and kept silent. It was sort of an open secret within the community that this teacher was behaving inappropriately with young female students, but nobody was the one to to come forward. So after this woman who stepped forward did something that was so brave, I felt like I I need to help keep the ball rolling in whatever small way I can. And so I've gotten together with a group of other alumni of the school, and we are trying to convince the administration to do a full investigation of what really happened with these teachers, because in order for the community to heal, we need to know that the true extent of what went on. And so far, we have not been successful at getting them to agree to do a full investigation of um, sexual abuse of students at, at the school. But we we are still trying. We, we know that it may be a long game, but it, it's so important just for for the healing of of survivors and also for the safety of the generations to come. And your position as a female student who had a who had, had a good experience with this teacher, it's interesting to me that, um, you know, you didn't feel like you had a story you needed to speak out and share because your experience had been different. And yet staying silent um, didn't feel right either. Why do you think that was? In, in discussions with my friends, one of the things that came out so strongly is all of us felt like if it happened to this woman, it so easily could have been us. And it so easily could have been any vulnerable student in that position. And none of us understood at the time just how vulnerable we were. And that was really scary to me. And so I wanted to take actions that would contribute to other future students not ever being in that vulnerable position. Yeah. One of the things that I think has certainly come for me out of um, working on this episode is just how how many opportunities there are in our daily lives to be complicit in our silence or in our in our preference to stay ignorant <laughs> to harm that may be going on. You know, I may not know and someone may not tell me, but am I also, do I also not know and am I not being told because I'm not open to hearing it? How much good might I be able to do if I were like actively looking to make sure that I wasn't enabling or complicit in some way? Right. And this is a tricky one because I think sometimes the ways that we're 
complicit or sort of invisible even to ourselves. We can be so embedded in a culture or so used to the norms of a particular environment that we don't even fully always realize what we're overlooking. And so I think we have to be open to not only self-scrutiny, but when other people come up to us and are like, hey, this is really wrong. Why aren't you saying something? Why aren't you doing something? We have to be open to receiving that criticism because I, I think we can help each other discover our blind spots and, and correct our blind spots. So I think that healing or, or bringing out the best in each other really is a collective venture. I mean, the real life superheroes show that, but just w- within any community, we can help ourselves um, fill in th- those blind spots for e- each other and continue mo- moving toward getting the truth out there and correcting what's wrong in whatever ways we can muster. Elizabeth, thank you for talking with me today. I've really enjoyed this. Thank you so much, Julie. This has been amazing. Elizabeth Svoboda is author of What Makes a Hero? The Surprising Science of Selflessness and The Life Heroic, How to Unleash Your Most Amazing Self. It's kind of cool to think that being okay with discomfort not just going along with the crowd or avoiding the tough conversations, is actually key to being the kind of person who helps rather than stands by. And that's the whole goal of this podcast, too. We think that listening to Top of Mind each week is a chance to practice sticking with the discomfort that comes when we encounter a perspective that challenges us. And we've got this special conversation series called Stick With It on the podcast, too, where listeners share what that has looked like in their own life. We've heard some great stories this season, and I'd still love to hear yours. So tell me about a time when you felt challenged and you had the urge to get defensive, but you chose to stick with that discomfort instead. What came of it? You can submit your stick with it story to our email address, which is topofmind@byu.edu. Top of Mind is a BYU radio podcast. Today's episode was produced by Samuel Benson, Vanessa Goodman, and me, with help from James Hoops and Cole Cummings. Our sound designers are Brandon Lewis, Christian Mockatel, and Mitchell Towsley. And if you'd take a moment to rate and review Top of Mind on your favorite podcast app, that would be great. It'll help people find us and join in this effort we're on to become better citizens, kinder neighbors, and more effective advocates. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon. <laughs>